0: You are listening to LearnOutloud.com's production of Spiritual Classics. Collecting key excerpts from a wide range of religious traditions throughout human history, this podcast is dedicated to showcasing the core teachings of the world's greatest spiritual thinkers. For a complete listing of all the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, Religions of the East, Paths to Enlightenment, taught by Professor Stephen Prudero. To check out this course and a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this lecture, Professor Stephen Prudero discusses what religion is and why it still matters in the modern age. He provides a number of important definitions of religion, from its origins, up to definitions by modern thinkers, such as Emile Durkheim, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and William James. While many scholars predicted the decline of religion and the rise of secularism in the twentieth century, the professor points out many ways in which religion is as widely practiced now as in any time in history.
1: Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar Series, where great professors teach you. My name's Virginia Leishman, and I'll be your host. Today, we begin a course entitled Religions of the East, Paths to Enlightenment. Your professor is Stephen Prothero, chairman of the Department of Religion and director of the Graduate Division of Religious and Theological Studies at Boston University. A historian of American religions, Professor Prothero specializes in Asian religious traditions in the United States. He teaches courses on Asian religions, American religious history, Buddhism in America, Hinduism in America, Death and Immortality, and Jesus in America. His first book, The White Buddhist, The Asian Odyssey of Henry Steele Alcott, 1996, was awarded the best first book in the history of religions for 1996 by the American Academy of Religion. His most recent book is American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon. The major religious traditions of Asia have been shaping lives and societies in their native countries so profoundly they often become inextricable from national identity. At the same time, the interplay of the various philosophies and devotions has in turn changed, renewed and informed the religions themselves. Buddhism, for example, can be seen as a response to Hinduism, while Hinduism itself grew out of an older tradition of sacrifice and incantation. These religions—Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism and Confucianism— are all still practiced today, not only in Asia, but as immigrants have traveled to the Americas and Europe in almost all parts of the world. Something powerful and compelling in these traditions continue to inspire devotion and win new converts. Even in our rapidly accelerating modern world, these ancient traditions offer paths to peace and harmony that have served the faithful for centuries. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin Religions of the East, Lecture 1 The Nature of Religion and How Asian Religions Complicate Things. And now, Professor Prothero.
2: This course explores the religions of Asia, starting with Hinduism, moving on to Sikhism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. But Asian religions aren't just for Asians anymore. Like Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs, Confucians and Taoists themselves, these religions move by books and migration and arts and the Internet. And as they move, they adapt and they change. They, they shed inessentials and hold fast to essentials. So we'll look at Asian religions both in their homelands of India, Tibet, Japan, China, and also in the Diaspora, in those areas scattered out from around the homelands of these faiths. I'll emphasize throughout the course really three main things. The first is the diversity of these religions, both inside the traditions, inside Hinduism, inside Buddhism, the ways in which Hindus and Buddhists disagree with one another, practice their faith differently and also diversity across the religions. What makes Hinduism different from Buddhism? What makes the Confucian tradition different from the Taoist tradition? So first, diversity. Second, development. I'm a historian, so I tend to think historically, how do these traditions develop over time? How do they change? There's one of the ideas behind religion often is is that it doesn't change. But if you look at them carefully, you'll see that religions do, both as they shift over time and as they move into new areas. So diversity, development. And then the third of these three Ds I'll be looking at are the religious dimensions. I'll talk about those later in the course. But basically the idea here is that all religious traditions have a number of areas that they get into, a number of dimensions, and some religions emphasize one thing, say ritual perhaps, more than others. Another might emphasize belief, or another might emphasize ethics. So we'll look not just how religions are different, diversity, how they change development, but also these religious dimensions. What matters most particularly to people of these individual religious faiths? In this first lecture, I want to think for a little bit, not about Asian religions in particular, but about religion in general. And I want to think about why this topic is important. In other words, why should we care about Asian religions? Why does religion matter? And I also want to reflect on the term religion itself, and how Asian religions, especially Buddhism and Confucianism, complicate that term in a really interesting way. So we'll be talking here, not about the religions of Asia today, but about religion in general, and so we'll have some tools as we go forward to think about particular Asian religions that we can use to apply them as we explore those particular faiths. Until fairly recently, it was an article of faith among intellectuals and scholars that religion and modernity were incompatible. The theory, secularization theory, said that as modernity advanced, as societies became more industrial, religion would fade away. And the peak of this idea really came in the 1960s, when there was a theology called Death of God Theology that would somehow do religion without God. And Time magazine had a black cover called Is God Dead that looked something like a funeral card. Religion, it seemed to many in the 60s, was irrelevant, at least irrelevant to the modern world. Then came the election in the United States in 1976 of Jimmy Carter, born-again, Southern Democratic president, And the next presidential election, 1980, three born-again Christians, John Anderson as an independent, and Carter and Reagan running. And then the Reagan revolution of the 1980s, and with it the rise of the moral majority or, more broadly, the religious right. And by the 1990s, the old wishful thinking about the disappearance of religion in the modern world was starting starting to look delusional. Smart sociologists simply admitted their mistakes. And so Peter Berger, for example, who was one of the main proponents of secularization theory in the 1960s, did a book in 1999 called The Desecularization of the World, and in that he he wrote, and I'm quoting from him here, "The world today, with some exceptions, is as furiously religious as it ever was, and in some places more so than ever." This means that a whole body of literature by historians and social scientists, loosely labeled secularization theory, is essentially mistaken. Now, international events played a role in this development, too. The first was the Iranian Revolution of 1979. We had this idea, again, that religion didn't matter in the modern world, and all of a sudden, this secular country was overtaken by this new religious right, in this case, a Muslim religious right in Iran. And then the 1990s, the rise to power of the BJP, this, this party in India, a Hindu right party, a religious right party, showed that you could have right-wing religious movements not only in the United States and in Iran, in the Middle East and in the West, but also in the Indian subcontinent. And finally 9-11, when we saw this, this quite negative face of religion, when Islam, at least as interpreted by these terrorists had quite clearly demonstrated the power of religion, in this case, the power of religion for, for evil rather than for good. The point, then, in looking back on these international and national events is that the secularization question, at least in my mind, is totally settled. For better or for worse, religion matters. It matters to a democratic party in the United States that is losing values voters to Republicans. It matters in the India-Pakistan conflict over the borders of Kashmir, if you want to understand national and international affairs, if you want to participate in the political process intelligently, you need to know something about religion. You need some kind of basic literacy about the religions of the world. This takes us to the question then of what religion is. And what always intrigues me as a scholar of religion is that everybody seems to know exactly what religion is and what it does. If you're at a cocktail party or if you're in in a college and you ask someone, they'll always tell you what they think and they're usually pretty sure. Religion, some say, is a wonderful thing. It holds society together. It gives meaning to individual lives. It transports us to heaven. Others say religion is a horrible thing. It divides us into factions. It drives us crazy, puts us in mental institutions. According to my students, organized religion is particularly bad. They prefer I suppose, disorganized religion, they prefer something they call spirituality. The only people who don't know what religion is, it seems, are scholars like myself, who trouble our students with questions like this, like, what is religion? These big kinds of questions. Now, one thing religious studies scholars do is they like to look at the origins of words, and so let's look at the origin of the word religion. It comes from the Latin religio, which means a feeling of fear in presence of the gods, and it also connotes an obligation to worship them. So there's two feelings here, or two senses, a sort of sense of fear and a sense of urgency about doing something about that fear. The word religio is probably related to the word religiare, which means to bind or to tie or to restrain or to unite. And so early on, religion was associated with binding yourself to the gods, with sacred obligations, things one is bound to do, and also with security, religion as an anchor of sorts in a wind-tossed world, something that ties you to the unchanging divinity or unites you with the reality of the world. The earliest theories of religion we have come from the Greeks and the Romans. And so we hear, for example, the idea from Parmenides that gods are personifications of natural forces. They are a response that humans have to mysteries in what we would now call the scientific order or the natural world. Where did fire come from? Why does lightning strike in such a capricious way, with such power. And so we handle these questions, these mysteries, by giving names to these forces and calling them gods, and then worshipping those gods in a hope that maybe the lightning won't get us or the hurricane will miss us or the tornado will get somebody else, our enemies perhaps. Another theory from Euhemerus says that gods are divinization of great men and women. We see this in the modern day, when we have figures who die, particularly figures who die young, and we somehow start to elevate them up, say, a figure like Martin Luther King Jr., or even a figure like Ronald Reagan, and there's a gradual process, at least in American culture, of turning some of these folks into saints, people like Thomas Jefferson or George Washington. And this is the euhemerist theory, is that gods are the divinization of great men and women. It's not enough to praise them as wonderful and important. We need to turn them into gods. More modern theories really begin in the Enlightenment, that period in the 18th century, when thinkers in the United States, or in what would become the United States, and in Europe, particularly Western Europe, start to think through old traditions, including religious traditions, in light of values and and beliefs such as freedom and liberty and human brotherhood and sisterhood. And here we get a clash between religion and reason, where religion is understood now as something irrational, something rooted in emotion and experience, which is to say something negative, something below science or something below philosophy. And so the Scottish philosopher and skeptic David Hume from the 18th century says that religion's origins are in barbaric emotion. Religion comes from the emotional side of us, which is to be mistrusted, rather than from the rational mind side of us, which is to be believed. And the, the key emotion is fear. So Hume says, we're afraid. And we then start to call our fear by a name. And we call that name God. And we hope that we can, by worshiping this God, stave off the things that we most fear. Another 18th century theory is by a German theologian named Friedrich Schleiermacher, who has a more positive view of religion, but one that shares a lot with Hume's idea of religion as emotion and fear. And he says the essence of religion is a feeling of absolute dependence. So religion is essentially affective rather than cognitive. It's something that you feel rather than something that you think. Religion's not about beliefs, he says. It's about a feeling, and the feeling is a feeling of being a human in the face of a world, and then particularly for Schleimacher, in the face of a God on whom one is utterly and totally dependent. The 19th century brings on the rise of the study of religion. The study of religion is different from earlier theories about religion in the sense that it tries to be a discipline. It tries to go about the project of figuring out what religion is and what religion does in a scientific way, and also in a comparative way, and I think most importantly in a non-confessional way, which is to say tries to study religion objectively without serving Christianity in the meantime, or serving Judaism, or for that matter, serving atheism or skepticism. And what we get in the beginning of comparative religion as a study is we get a number of theories that we now call anthropological or sociological. And so the anthropological views by people who are studying human cultures, typically cultures not their own, The classic one is Edward Tyler. Edward Tyler argues that religion originates in and is therefore essentially, and I'm quoting from him now, belief in spiritual beings. And this idea is animism, the idea of animism. And it's a classic definition and probably the most important definition even today in terms of the popular conception of what religion is, that religion is really about beliefs and the belief is in spiritual beings or gods or God. And Tyler was noticing, for example, how people in in many cultures would take trees or take rocks and they would invest those rocks with spirits and those trees with spirits. And this is the notion behind animism. It's a very important idea if you just go and open your your dictionary and you look at what the dictionary says. You might find something like this. I took this from the American dictionary. Religion is, we're talking about, belief in the existence of of a superhuman controlling power, especially of God or the gods, usually expressed in worship. So again, following Tyler, we have religions about belief, and it's about belief in God or gods, and then it adds this idea of worship. J.J. J. Frazier, another early anthropologist, has a theory about religion that owes a lot to Darwin, owes a lot to the theory of evolution. What happens in, particularly in the late 19th century, is people start to think in evolutionary terms about almost everything. You know, Darwin is thinking about this in terms of the evolution of species, but people start to apply this sort of master metaphor to almost everything, including religion. And so Fraser gives us this theory, four step theory. We get magic first, and magic for him is manipulating the world through the power of objects and the power of words. Abracadabra, and hold up something and magic happens. That's the first step. The second is polytheistic religions, religions with more than one God, which is better than magic, Fraser thinks. And then the third is monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, which are better than polytheistic religions, which, as I've said, is better than magic. But this isn't the last step. The last step for Fraser is science, and so, religion, according to his view, is kind of bad science. It's really good magic and really bad science. That might be the way, might be the way to put it. And so, there's a theory here, or there's an assumption of Fraser, behind Fraser that that religion is going away. There's kind of a secularization theory here, we might say. Alongside these anthropological approaches, we have some sociological approaches by sociologists such as the French thinker Emile Durkheim who focuses not on animism, as Tyler did, but on totemism. And totemism is the worship of an animal who stands for a group by a particular community. In other words, a community that you might find in a so-called primitive culture that is, say, separates out a particular animal, like a cow, or like, as you will see in India, or like a bear... And they say, we are the cow people, we are the bear people, and we will not eat this particular animal because this is our God. And the thing that's interesting about totemism for Durkheim is that it makes religion social rather than individual. So if you have these definitions that really focus on belief kind of takes you into the heart of a person. For Durkheim, what happens now with religion is it takes you into the heart of a society. And this will become very useful for thinking about religions that are much more social, as, for example, when we get to the Sikh tradition. I'll talk a little bit about how this is an intriguingly social religion and really a lot less interested in in the individual than some other faiths. And so Durkheim says that religion is a unified system of belief and practices related to sacred things, that is to say, things set apart and forbidden beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community called the church all those who adhere to them now this is a little hard to to take in when you listen to it but the thing that is most important for me for durkheim is durkheim is really the first great reductionist he's the first great thinker who says religion isn't really what you think it is religion is something else and in his case religion is really worshipping not god But religion is a community worshipping itself. It's worshipping its own values. It's worshipping that feeling that you get when you're part of a a sports team or when you're part of a a community that's really engaged in something, that feeling of transcendence, that feeling of energy uh, and exuberance. That's what religion is really about. It's not about the gods. It's not about God. Not only that, it's not just about belief. It's about practice. And so Durkheim, who is Jewish, by the way, and is aware of the importance of ritual in religion, brings both belief and practices in here, brings not just the individual, but more importantly, the community. Now, Karl Marx has a view of religion that shares some things with Durkheim in the sense that it's more social and in the sense that it's more critical. And you've probably heard this one. Religion is the opiate of the masses. Religion is the opiate of the masses. So um, it's an instrument of exploitation. It's the way that the ruling class, the haves, keep the have-nots in their place. You know, they say, hey, look, uh, you ought to be uh, Buddhists because if you 're Buddhists, then you 'll know that the reason you 're poor is because you had a bad past life and you deserve to be poor, or you are a christian, so so you should obey and you 're a slave, so you should obey your masters this is marx 's idea of religion it 's social, but it 's also a bad thing as we move into the twentieth century, psychology. Catches on, and we start to get these psychological approaches to religion that really focus now more on the individual. And this is part of the rise of individualism in the West. A fellow like William James, who says religion is the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude, so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they consider the divine. Now, this is a mouthful too. But what's interesting to me here is that we now go back to feelings. We now go back to Schleiermacher, the idea of feeling of absolute dependence. But William James is gonna emphasize that this is, religion is about experience and it's about solitary experience. And for James, it's really about mystical experience. It's about the experience of the solitary mystic, the religious expert who goes off into the woods and meditates, say, as a Hindu or as a Buddhist. That's the essence of religion and very little interest in William James, in ordinary folks, in what ordinary folks do, how they might go to a Hindu temple, for example, or how they might go to church. doesn't really matter as much as what the mystics are doing. Real religion can be found in the heart of the mystical experience. Now Freud, Sigmund Freud, agrees in a way with James that religion goes on in the individual heart, but he sees it not as a positive thing, but more as a negative thing. He talks about religion as an illusion, as wish-fulfillment. He says it's the universal obsessional neurosis of humanity. And he has an odd theory that he articulates in a book called Totem and Taboo from 1912. He says that he imagines that there was, in earliest human cultures, these primitive people who ran around in these small hordes led by a father who had tyrannized his sons and monopolized women, including sexual access to women. And so the sons rebelled, and they killed him and they even cannibalized him and afterwards they felt a tremendous amount of guilt and so they created this totem animal remember the idea of totemism from durkheim they created a totem animal to stand for the father and to serve as an object of worship and then they came to call itself after the clan after the the totem animal like the sports teams we have today the bears or the lions people who identify with one another and identify with this totem at the same time. And then they elevate this totem animal into an ancestral spirit, and they would have a taboo against eating it. And so here, according to Freud, religion grows out of a murder. It grows out of this kind of crazy situation where social order, morality, religion, all originate together and all are tied up with this edible complex situation where the sons want to have sex with their mother and they therefore have rivalries and in this case even kill their father. The influences or the understandings of religion that are most important for contemporary study of religion including for the study of Asian religions that we'll be doing in this course are called phenomenological approaches and these are this is a long word for really talking about an approach to studying religion that starts with classifying phenomena so it starts with here we have a certain kind of experience over here or here we have ritual behavior here we have pilgrimage classifying the elements of religion prayer Sacrifice, and then asking and this is the key question: What do these phenomena mean for religious people? So instead of sort of standing outside and saying religious people think this is going on, but really what it is is such and so, right? Really what it is is obsessional neurosis, or really what it is is they're worshiping their their society. What the phenomenological approach does is goes and tries to go into the heart of the feelings and the beliefs and the meanings of religious people. And that's what we'll mostly be doing in this course. For the most part we'll be trying not to explain Buddhism, not to explain Hinduism, but to understand Hindus, to understand Buddhists. What really gets them going? What questions are they asking? What do they see as the problem with human life? How do they try to solve that problem? That's a sort of phenomenological approach that we'll be using here. And the people who did this, there's a fellow named Rudolf Otto who lived between the 19th and the 20th century. He says the essence of religious experience is awe and fascination in the presence of the numinous, the transcendent numinous. In other words, this sense of being transported, this sense of shaking and quaking in the presence of the sacred. That's what religion is really about because that's what it means to people. That's how it feels when you're in the presence of this experience. When you're having a satori moment in the Zen tradition or when you are a guru in the Hindu tradition and sensing the reality of God inside your own body, inside your own person. Another key thinker here is a fellow named Mirce Iliati, 20th century figure, who talks about the key thing in religion as being the sacred manifesting itself in what he calls hierophanies, which is a fancy word for places where God or the gods appear, where the sacred appears in trees, in temples, in rivers, in festivals, in saints. And what the sacred is all about for Eliot is two things, power and reality. And we'll see this when we get to the Vedic religion, and we'll see it when we get to Hinduism, the idea that the sacred is about power. And to be close to the sacred, say, in the Vedic tradition, to the mantras uh, that come out of the the Vedas, these scriptures. To be close to those words, to hear those words, is to be in the presence of what is powerful and what is really real. The most important contribution of the phenomenology of religion, these phenomenological approaches to what we want to do in this course, is really two things. One is bracketing. What bracketing means is you sort of put your own beliefs in brackets. So when you encounter Taoism, instead of saying, is it true? Do I believe it? You know, is it like the religion I grew up with, is it like Methodism or is it like Reformed Judaism? Instead of doing that, you try to bracket your own judgments. You try to sort of set them aside and say, what I want to do first is figure out this religion rather than judging it. And that's what I'll be doing here. I'm not going to be telling you what's great about Taoism, what's bad about Taoism or why Confucianism stinks as a religion or why Buddhism is the way to go. That's not what I'm going to do because I'm going to be bracketing my own beliefs and I hope you'll bracket yours a little bit. In the service of, and this is the second part of phenomenology, in the service of empathetic understanding. So the goal is to understand not to judge, understand not to explain. One metaphor for this that you hear a lot is, you know, walking in the shoes of a believer, trying to feel what it's like or understand what it's like to be a Thai monk who's wandering out in the forest and doing walking meditation. What is that about? What is that experience about? Now what intrigues me about these various this really quick run through this history of theories of religion is that people who offer these theories don't ask the same questions. And so this actually we're not asking just one question here. There's a whole slew of questions we're asking, and each of these questions is going to come up either directly or indirectly in this course. Where did religion come from? Is one. You'll notice that some of these theories are really talking about the origins of religion. Where does religion come from? That's one question. Another is what is its essence? And this is related to the first, because some people think that the earliest form of something is the real something, right? So if you can find the earliest religion, then you'll find the essence of religion, the true religion. That isn't necessarily the case. You know, something might evolve. It might start out a certain way and evolve into something else. But where did religion come from? What is its essence? Is the core of religion to be found in elites, in those mystics that William James is attracted to, in their mystical experience that very few of us have? Is that what religion's all about? Or is it found in ordinary folks? If we want to learn about Hinduism, should we go and just meet an ordinary person in New Delhi, on the street? Or should we go to a temple and find a priest? Or should we go to the Ganges and find a mystic, a sannyasin standing there? Where should we go? Is it elites or ordinary folk? Is it individual or social? What matters more, the feelings of an individual Or the rituals of a society? This is another question, and it's something that religious studies scholars and students think about a lot. What is the function of religion? What does it do? So now we're not talking about what it is, we're talking about what does it do. Does it do good things or bad things? Is religion a good thing or a bad thing? On 9-11 it didn't seem like a very good thing. There's other times it seems like a wonderful thing, like in the heart of Martin Luther King when he's leading the Civil Rights Movement. Another question, is it fading away? Another big question, is religion going away or is it with us to stay? Now, behind these questions, there are basically two kinds of definitions of religion. The first is substantive and the second is functional. So the first is about, you have religion when you have some substance, something. Typically it's God or spiritual beings or the supernatural. These are definitions like Tyler's. Religion is about a certain substance. Another kind of definition is a functional definition. If you want to know what religion is, you need to look at what it does. So, a classic one from the 60s, Paul Tillich, German theologian. Religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern. If you're grasped by an ultimate concern, you're doing religion. This is functional. Now, the problem with functional definitions is they tend to be too broad, they tend to include things that we suspect are not really religions, like religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern. What if I'm a Red Sox baseball fan? What if I'm nuts about the World Series? This is my ultimate concern. People try to talk to me, I won't listen to them. You know, I'm, I'm missing a lot of days at work because I'm obsessing about Red Sox baseball. Well, for Tillich, Tillich would say, well, then that's your religion. And that's the problem with a functional definition. Most of us don't want to include nationalism or Marxism, or baseball in our understanding of religion. Well, why? Because, well, they don't have gods, you know, because they don't seem to fit. Now, the substantive definitions, these are the ones where we say, look, you need to have God in order to have the religion, they tend to be too narrow, and they exclude things that we suspect are religions. So Buddhism, for example, in its early forms, has no gods. So if you're going to stick really strictly to these substantive definitions, religion is about God, belief, in spiritual beings, then Buddhism is not a religion. But we sort of sense that Buddhism probably is a religion. Same with Confucianism. Confucianism doesn't have gods either. Does that mean it's not a religion? Well, depends on how you define religion. Now, one approach here is to give up on the idea of religion altogether. This is something that was done by a fellow named W.C. Smith, another 20th century thinker. His approach, he called personalism, kind of personalist approach to understanding religion. And the idea is, don't talk about religion. Talk about religious people. Talk about faith that people have and the traditions in which they stand. Don't talk about Hinduism. Talk about Hindus. Don't talk about Buddhism. Talk about Buddhists. And he would say, let's move from the it of religion to the they of religion. And his ultimate goal is to say, let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about the religious it, that thing over there. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about those Confucians, those Taoists, And even better, let's talk about us. Let's talk about we human beings. Each of us has some kind of faith. Each of us stands in some kind of tradition. Let's talk about us and have conversations across religious boundaries. That was his goal. The doctrinal and philosophical dimension of religion. Next is ethical and legal. There's a tradition from Asia we won't talk about in this course, the Jain tradition. They have this idea of of nonviolence, which is where Gandhi got his idea of nonviolence, and to some extent even Thoreau in America. And they, they take this ethical precept of nonviolence so seriously that they wear masks so that they don't breathe in insects, so they don't breathe in bugs. This is the religious dimension that pushes the ethical and the legal We see this too in, say, Orthodox Jews who are following the law and not eating certain kinds of food, observing the kosher rules. And the last is the social and the institutional side of religion that's emphasized by Durkheim, the the Buddhist community of monks, the church, the Muslim ummah, the Muslim community. And so as we go through these religions of Asia, through Buddhism and Hinduism and Sikhism and Confucianism and Taoism, I'm going to try to think with you about the dimensions. Which dimension is most important here? You know, is is Buddhism really about the social, or is it really about the mythic, or is it really about, about something else? As I said earlier, the main aim of this course is to familiarize you with a variety of religions of Asia and to provide you with some basic religious literacy. But along the way, we will be asking and thinking through some broader questions about religion and these religions in general And these come out of these definitions of religion that we've wrestled a little bit with in this lecture, and they look forward to the particular information we'll be talking about when we get to these faiths. And the questions are really six, and they go like this, and I'll do them really quickly. Are religions basically the same, or are they fundamentally different? Are they different paths up the same mountain? Or is it maybe the case that Some people aren't trying to get up the mountain. Some people are trying to get under the mountain or they're trying to get around the mountain or they think the mountain is an illusion. So are religions basically the same or fundamentally different? Are religions mostly about beliefs or about actions? Are religions mostly about individuals or about society? How do religions change over time? How do they develop? What happens when they run into contact with modernity? Do they shrink away or do they sort of stand up and and wrestle with modernity? And what happens when they come in contact with other civilizations? Particularly, what happens when Asian religions come to the United States? How do they adapt? How do they change their stripes, as it were, when they come to this country? And finally, the last question I would say is, what might Asian religions have to teach us about our shared human predicament? What can they tell us about coping with suffering, about obligations we owe, to ourself and to others, and about what it is to be a human being. In the next lecture, we'll be looking at the oldest of the Asian religions, and one that emphasizes, when it gets to the religious dimensions, that really emphasizes the ritual and the practical side of religion. And that's Vedic religion, or Hinduism before Hinduism.
1: This ends Lecture 1.